0: Another episode of Just Jerry Live, plotting perspectives in church life with Todd Bright
1: and Jeff Short. Howdy, howdy. Well, the uh, winter has arrived here again. It seems they're calling for snow starting here in a little bit and continuing through in the morning. So
0: you guys are probably getting in snow, what we're getting in rain. We it, now it's seventy four today. But it is raining cats and dogs. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so we started this uh little study last time, and uh, if anybody listened to that first episode, I said we were going to do the introduction... You know, chapter one, two and three in that one episode. Boy, we really overshot the runway there. (laughs) We 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 got the introduction and chapter one done and we need to begin looking at chapter two today. And you know what? Let's just do chapter two only today. How about that?
1: Well, you know, I I realize how why your sermons are as long as they are, and uh, so it was it was a crazy idea to think we were going to cover all the way to chapter three.
0: (laughs) You're right, and uh, you you know what? The proof is in the pudding, they say. Banana pudding. Oh man, the hot kind too, the kind Mama makes. So. So in chapter one, basically, well, let's just back up. In the introduction, he basically just sort of gives a little bit of biographical information, how he grew up, what he, you know, began believing and being taught early on. Chapter one, he introduces amillennialism and just gives some basic definitions of what it is. But at the end of the day, Christ is reigning now. This is according to the amillennial system. Christ is reigning now, and he will use his church in a, in a sense of including every saved person on the planet right now is the way he's using that. He will use his church to spread his reign, not the gospel necessarily, though I'm sure that is part of the equation. But he will spread his reign through the earth until his return. And he says again, this is the message of amillennialism, that Christ's reign and kingdom is right now. And the other thing that he stressed is that amillennialism is simple. And we made plenty of comments about that. I don't don't want to go back through all of that. I'm just trying to catch anybody up that may have not listened to the first episode. So that brings us to chapter two. And chapter two is just a discussion of major end time view. You know, what various people view as a possibility of the end times. And he does a pretty good job, though it is very elementary. He's not, and this book is that way, but I think he's actually rather honest in how he deals with these end-time views. I don't think he really misrepresents anybody too terribly. Would you agree?
1: No, I thought his overview was good. I mean, it's obviously a very basic overview. He's not trying to delve into the intricacies and nuances of every Different view of eschatology, but just giving a broad overview of the most general categories of views of eschatology. I I thought he did a good job. I don't, I don't know why anyone reading the representation of their view there would, would complain. I mean, obviously you'd want to say more and you'd want to clarify and you'd want to do all that, but I thought he gave a, I thought he gave a reasonable overview.
0: Well, in in his defense, he doesn't say anything more about amillennialism than he does about premillennialism or any any other view. He's he's pretty good. No, now.
1: He, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, he seemed to he seemed to just uh, and I, I let me just say. Of course, we've read through chapter um, three at this point, and we're right now discussing chapter two. Um, but so far, I've appreciated his writing, and I, I feel like he is writing honestly. And so he seemed to have given a genuine effort, not trying to you know, to be condescending toward one view or, or the other, or what have you, I I, I guess the word for it would be fair. I, I thought he was fair.
0: It, neither of us know him. We talked about that in the last episode. I don't know if he's an intellectual, like somebody like D.A. Carson or if he's more of uh, just a straight shooter, but this book is an easy read. It's not hard to follow. It's, it's, uh, it's not something that just drives you crazy. It's an easy read. So He makes a statement that I actually agree with a lot. And this is the statement that he makes on the first page of chapter 2, right under the heading, An Eschatological Overview. He says, The major views about the end times have been divided according to how they interpret Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Then this is what he says. Starting your study on the end times with one of the last chapters in a highly symbolic apocalyptic book is not the best approach. Now, I would say the highly symbolic apocalyptic, you know, description that he gives of Revelation is carrying a little bit of weight. He's he's. He's dropping a a hint there of how he's going to approach Revelation when he gets there. But he is dead on that nobody with any view should start in Revelation 20 and then go back through the Bible and press that into everything that you see. I agree with that 100 percent.
1: Yeah, I think he's completely right. He's using a little bit of loaded language. But at the same time, he's been completely honest from the start of this book. You know, sometimes you read books and maybe they're marketed as books on eschatology and maybe they're not, but it almost feels like the author is trying to conceal, you know, he's trying to smuggle in his eschatology um, so that you're, you know, you're, he's getting it there and you're just unwittingly reading it. And, you know, Ammon is not doing that. So when I say he's using loaded language, he is, and it's, it's obviously consistent with his view. Um, but it, it does it does tend to try to stack the deck a little bit to to sway your view of of a book like Revelation.
0: No question. And and I will say just up front and I'm sure we'll get to this as we work through this book, but I believe the right place to start talking about biblical prophecy is the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Amen. Okay. So I, you know, I that,
1: that's kind of the when he gets to the end of that paragraph, so when you're on page 9 he says, I believe it's best to start with the Bible's straightforward passages and then use what we learn from the Bible's clear teaching to interpret more difficult passages like Revelation 20. And that's a statement that sounds good on the face of it. The problem with it is, is that while he's saying don't start at the end to study eschatology, he's going, he's rather going to start in the middle. Well, um, and that comes well, really, out more clearly in the next chapter, but
0: I, I would probably make the argument he's going to start Closer to the end than the middle.
1: (laughs) Well, that's true. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. you're going to be starting the Gospels, right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nonetheless, I hate to jump ahead too too terribly far. So he begins talking about premillennialism on on page 10, and he does a good job. You know, premillennialists believe that Jesus is physically going to reign on Earth for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, evil men who exist on Earth will attack the people of God and He goes on and says there's multiple views within premillennialism. We are premillennialists, admittedly, uh, reviewing a book on amillennialism. So we are are biased, but that's pretty straightforward.
1: Right. He separates, um, you know, post-trib views, pre-trib views, mid-trib views. I don't really think he said anything about the historic premill view because that's not exactly the same thing as a post-trib premill view. But um, but in general, um, those are the. Those are the categories.
0: Yeah, and I do think in this book, and we've only read through Chapter 3, but just knowing what he said in the introduction of his upbringing, I'm just going to assume that the pre-trib, pre-millennial view is the one he's probably going to contrast the most with amillennialism. Yeah, so, no, I think so. Yeah, I, I would think. He also deals with post-millennialism, which seemed to go away for a while and is making sort of a, a comeback uh Postmillennialism asserts that Christ will return after the thousand year rule upon the earth and that the thousand year period represents the success of the church's mission on earth. And then he goes on and breaks it down between a revivalist approach and a reconstructionist approach. I've, you know, I'm not a postmillennialist, but he seems like he does a pretty decent job at explaining that
1: the There's quite a bit of overlap between post meal and a-meal, and sometimes that can be confusing, especially when you look at different varieties within under each you know larger category. but I think he did a pretty good job just giving a basic representation of post millennialism sure
0: i I did too and then he goes on and he talks about ah millennialism uh ah being the negative there before millennialism so if millennialism is the belief that jesus will reign a thousand years ah millennialism is the belief that he will not though that's not as honest probably as we need to be they actually do believe in a thousand year reign they just believe we're living in it right now and he states that ah millennialism states that we are currently in the 1,000-year rule of Christ in Revelation 20. The 1,000-year reign represents the current reign of Christ over his church and the kingdom of God or the present reign of deceased saints with Christ. So he sort of equates the kingdom and the church there, which I think is problematic. But he also includes the present reign of deceased saints with Christ right now, too. As part right. of the Amillennial system,
1: right. So the thousand-year rule that he talks about there, Amill views the thousand years as symbolic, so not not literally one thousand years, but that it's just it's just symbolic of a long span of time, and so they would they would see that reign as taking place from the ascension of Christ after the resurrection when he was seated at the right hand of God they would equate that with him being seated on the throne of David and that reign continues until his return to his second coming um and then from there you have the judgments and the the eternal ages
0: yeah and i i would say and i, I don't mean this to sound like the jab that's probably going to come out sounding like but it's always been interesting to me that the 1,000 years is taken just to mean, quote, unquote, a long time. And yet it already at this point represents a period twice as long as it actually reads. That <laughs> that just right. has always seemed a little bit odd to me. One, one of the major differences between the premillennial position and the amillennial position is that the amillennial position does hold that Jesus is currently sitting on David's throne in fulfillment of all those promises where we would hold as premillennialists that the that is future, that he will actually sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem, just like there was a throne in Babylon or Rome or Egypt or wherever else, that it's, right. it's the actual throne. Okay, Uh so he talks a little bit about optimistic amillennialism, which he says is similar to revival postmillennialism. He talks a little bit about pessimistic amillennialism, which is... <laughs> not an attitude, but an actual theological position. Then he goes into preterism, which probably most of us would have an issue with, especially full preterism, which believes that the prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD, that Jesus has already returned, that the new heavens and the new earth have already been established, and that there is no physical resurrection. And I was glad to see him point out For most of Christian history, full preterism has been considered a heresy, though it is more popular now than it has ever been. I agree. I I do think full preterism is something that we just cannot compromise with. I I mentioned that I've got good friends that I've even preached that hold different positions than I do on prophetical things. This is an exception. I do not believe I could uh, preach a full preterist at all.
1: Right. Yeah. I, he makes the distinction. And one of the reasons why he needs to make that is because all meal and post mill views are partial preterist. You know, it, it's it's a necessity. They're not full preterist. And there and there is a difference. And uh, he mentions that it's a it's a heresy. Now, one of the interesting things that I noticed as I was reading through here is he when he talked about full preterism, He says, you know, full predators, and this is on page 13, they believe that Christ has already returned. The new heavens, new earth has already been established. There's no physical resurrection. Essentially, you know, the full predators takes a symbolic view of all of those things happening. But if you back up to page 12, he just said about amillennialism, the amillennialism timeline shows that we are currently in the symbolic millennial reign of Christ. And that the second coming and the final judgment will occur in rapid succession in the future. And so I, I think his critique of full preterism is a little bit inconsistent with his view because why can we have a symbolic millennium, but not a symbolic second coming, not a symbolic judgment, not a symbolic new heavens and new earth? You know, I don't, I mean, what, what biblically would, would distinguish between those two things?
0: It is interesting that. And again, we've got, we're not angry at all millennialists. We've got friends that are all millennialists. This is just a discussion to try to, you know, to try to drum up some good, uh, healthy discussion. But I've got all millennial friends that would take that latter part of Revelation 19 where Jesus returns is absolutely literal and mm-hmm. chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, absolutely literal, while chapter 20 would be completely or for at least for the most part, symbolic. And that does seem right. odd there, but I know you're right. I think he does do that. He's being upfront about it, but he does, he does do that. Sure. He goes on to talk about futurism, which is uh the idea that most end time prophecies have a future fulfillment. He talks about historicism, which argues that most prophetical portions of the scripture were fulfilled in seventy AD and beyond, but he does notate that mostly through the second and third century, which is interesting. And then there is this new idea, it this is this has not been uber popular until recently, but I have heard people putting it forward, this idealism that deals with biblical prophecies in in a way that they are completely symbolic of a spiritual reality. In other words, they're all just about spiritual warfare and most right. idealists would view the book of revelation as saying the same thing over and over and over and over again just in different ways looking at it from different vantage points
1: which really when you think about idealism that would be more that would be more like making the bible more like the bhagavad gita or you know some of those kind of holy texts that are basically just or even the way that that a lot of pagan mythology is revered that you know these are just these are just showing us general truths to live by and and things like that like th- this isn't actually a a prof a prophecy or a foretelling of what's going to happen in the future but more or less just some you know just some general maybe wisdom for life or or something like that
0: that's absolutely right. There, revelation again would just be a, a storytelling over and over and over from different vantage points that talk about the the process of redemption. But mm-hmm. I just really struggle to see that myself as I read. So I, it.
1: I guess my my point would then be, I, I mean, and I'm not really familiar with someone that espouses a view of idealism, but it, to me, it, it I mean, it just doesn't even sound Christian. The ide- the I, idealism, so.
0: Idealism has really caught on, uh, especially in the approach to the book of Revelation. And I've actually listened to a little bit of preaching about it. I, I completely disagree mm. with it, but uh, it, it has caught on, especially among uh, the all-millennial crowd. I have no idea where, you know, this brother that we're reading this book, I don't know where he comes down on that. We're going to find that out as we go through the book, I'm sure. But he does list it as a viable position, and it has gained a lot of popularity these days. Interesting. He goes on to talk about, uh, some questions that are going to be raised in this book. I don't think there's any reason for us to go into great detail because he's going to talk about them as he gets there. But are there multiple returns of Jesus? Are there multiple resurrections? Are there multiple judgments? Uh, is, what is the timing and sequence of the return of Jesus? When is the, you know, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth? He goes on to say all of these are debated and, you know, we're going to talk about. Them. Right. Yeah. Now, he he returns to this this one little thing. And maybe I'm just it just continues to get in my craw just a little bit. But he he says, I promised this book would be simple. And he goes on to say what excites me. What most excites me is that Jesus made the end times simpler than many realize. He clarified the end far beyond the Hebrew scriptures. You know, I'm almost through preaching through Luke right now, and I'm just going to say I just disagree with that statement. I I do not believe the end times are simple. I mean, every system is simple when you explain it. But looking at the scriptures that deal with end times, is difficult. And you know what? That's why he wrote this book, because it's not easy.
1: Right. Yeah. The, if it was really as simple as what he's saying, then, yeah, why? I don't even know why there would be a need to write such a book. But really, when you're talking about whatever the system of eschatology is, when you just state the high points, it sounds simple. But, but getting there is not. And when you start looking at Old Testament prophecies and then we, we get into the New Testament, and we're seeing some of these things being fulfilled, we we realize that, you know, the the Pharisees and you know the Jews of the first century had misinterpreted, you know, a lot of a lot of prophecies. You know, they they had misunderstood prophecies. And and it's 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 easy to see how that they could. I mean it's these things are not, you know, that simple now i will granted yes uh I, we can always overcomplicate things but again i to me I, I i think it's reflective of of his approach and you know of how he came to om, millennialism. and uh, as far as that goes again i think he's just writing honestly um but again i don't to me the you know simplicity is not you know what determines what is true and even peter talked about Paul writing about things that are hard to be understood. You know, the writer of Hebrews talks about having, ha, wanting to write more than what he did, but that his, his readers, they weren't ready for it. You know, they, they weren't mature enough. You know, there's a distinction in the New Testament about what's referred to as the milk of the word and the meat of the word. So the whole idea of simplicity, I, yeah, he just continues to state that in the first part of this book. And it's something I could have done without.
0: Yeah. And I'm not crazy about this sentence that says Jesus clarified the end time far beyond the Hebrew scriptures. Now, if he had just said Jesus clarified the Hebrew scriptures, well, that's just sort of the nature of progressive revelation. You know more as you read. So I would have been okay with that. But I don't think Jesus took land promises and promises of nations coming to Jerusalem And, you know, worshiping the God Yahweh, that is the true and living God. I don't think Jesus said, okay, none of that means what it says. And I think that's where we need to be cautious in trying to oversimplify.
1: Right. And that really is getting at the fundamental disagreement that you and I both are probably going to have with this book. And if you want to hear more about that, chapter three actually gets into it because it deals with hermeneutics and how that you're going to interpret the scripture. And that really is the fundamental issue between pre-meal and and on systems.
0: Absolutely. You got anything else on this chapter?
1: No, I think we've probably done enough.
0: I think that'll be a good setup for the next one because the next one is not going to be this short. So uh, enjoy this short one, and the next one will probably be, you know, seven or eight minutes longer. This is Just Jerry Live with Todd and Jeff signing off. Have a great day.